Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Jenny L. Davis. Jenny is a senior lecturer in the School of Sociology at the Australian National University. She's a social psychologist and technology theorist. Her work addresses human technology interaction, role-taking, and the ways politics, power, and values integrate into technological systems. She's the author of How Artifacts Afford, The Power and Politics of Everyday Things. And she is coming to us from the future because it is already Thursday for her and it is still Wednesday night for me. And I'm really excited to have you on the deep dive. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So, you know, we're going to spend probably the majority of our time talking about the book, How Artifacts Afford. And I was on Twitter, as I usually am, kind of meandering around. And somehow someone in that I either follow or someone that, you know, retweeted something about your book. And immediately I was like, wow, this sounds like really interesting, right? Like I did the proverbial judge the book by the cover and the title. And I was like, oh, this is really fascinating. Sounds fascinating. And I reached out to you and the rest is history. And here you are. And I'm glad that the book lived up to all of my expectations. It's a really interesting way to think about the way in which we structure our tools, our society. And I love the fact that power and politics were squarely like in the title, right? Because oftentimes people dismiss those as sort of philosophical musings rather than really the way in which we negotiate things. So very long preamble. I warned you before this, I'm prone to to ramble. And so leading up to the first question, what I really want to kind of set the table with is this, you know, really a definition of the concept of affordance. I always think it's a good place to set the table. Like you use this term, what something provides. And I think that's a perfect way to kind of kick off the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you read the book and that it lived up to its cover. I should admit that I had very little to do with the cover, even though it's one of my favorite parts about the book. That was the press has a whole marketing team and they sent that to me. And I thought, well, I better have written something decent because that's beautiful. So, so I'm glad you liked the book. And so affordances has this really long history. It has been sort of philosophized and theorized quite a lot. But I think it's more beneficial to talk about affordances in a really practical sense, just how the features of a technology enable and constrain. And that means directly, like what are the direct utilities of the technology? What buttons can you push? What functions are available or not available? But also the flow on social effects. So for instance, how does the technology shape our attitudes, our perceptions, our feelings, our behaviors? So affordances essentially are how the features of a technology enable and constrain, and that can be both direct as well as sort of more broadly social. I'm glad the the how came up right away because very early on, you kind of set up this binary challenge of how people think about affordance. And you talk about how we think about the how, you know, process and nuance versus the what and what tends to be you know, one-dimensional. So I want to give you a chance to kind of walk us through a little bit of that challenge between the how and the what when it comes to affordance. Absolutely. I think in general, questions of how are so much more interesting because they get away from that either or. And so rarely in anything is either or sort of the best way to explain what's happening somewhere. And anytime you sort of dig into any kind of social phenomena an either or answer is woefully inadequate. And so in general, I tend towards the how. I think a lot of sociologists would tend towards the how. What has happened with technology studies and often sort of popular analysis and kitchen table style analysis of technologies is we often tend towards the what. Either we're socially cut off or we're socially enabled by social media, for instance. Either we're liberated to work from home or we're completely prohibited from it because of technological 
um, apparatuses or whatever. So I think often what we end up in are these false debates between things that are either inevitable or impossible. When in practice, if we really interrogate our own engagements with technology and other people's engagements with technology, what we see is a lot more nuance, where something isn't inevitable or impossible, but we're pushed and pulled with varying degrees of insistence. We're nudged in one direction or another with more and less force. And I think what that how does is lets us capture and articulate those nudges rather than inevitabilities. It's interesting that you kind of framed it in that way between the inevitable and the impossible. And I just kind of jotted that down to add to the conversation. And I'm going to ask this as I as I think through it, because I think oftentimes I've been someone who does that, right? Where if I read the terrible story, right? So we're in the middle of pandemic and we we're kind of talking about that a little bit before we got on the show. And I remember having a conversation, just casual conversation around for example, the vaccine, right? And I looked at the vaccine as kind of a three-pronged process, right? One, there's a branding issue in terms of, given that there is a, a growing momentum against vaccines in general, one needs to understand that this is somewhat of a marketing challenge, right? To brand the notion of a vaccine as being good. There is a issue that is also a logistical issue, a supply chain issue. How do we physically get the vaccine to as many people as possible, right? And, you know, so just kind of taking those two, I kind of look at the poor rollout of the vaccine here in the United States, at least, as inevitable, given the systemic issues that we are dealing with as a nation, right? That, you know, the inability and my editorial to do big things seems to be like fairly cooked into the system at this point, but maybe that's not an accurate way of looking at things. So long preamble to say that the inevitable versus the impossible, are there some aspects to that that are big system things that are maybe value-driven versus the more detailed things of a product or service? I think that's a great point. And I think the detailed things of a product or service are inevitably or always sort of a product of tied to entangled with the big systemic issues, right? Like the design features of Twitter didn't come out of the air or come out of the vacuum brains of technology designers and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. What it comes from is a whole system of norms, values, and sociological arrangements about what people expect and what people assume. And so the specific features are always going to be tied to the systemic issues. And oftentimes those systemic issues do feel and seem inevitable. I think the value in understanding them as not inevitable is twofold. One element, it allows us to sort of reach in and identify the conditions that have created that seeming inevitability. If we're unable to roll out a vaccine at scale, and it was sort of clear from the outset that that was going to be the case, but we say that's not inevitable, it means that decisions were made, values were enacted, systems were put in place that created those circumstances. And if we understand it is not inevitable, then we can interrogate and point to what those systems, values, and decisions are. And in doing so, it also opens the space for recreation and reconstruction. Right. So if we can understand that this could have been otherwise, however, there's this whole mechanism or system in place that sort of becomes a juggernaut, it becomes self-reinforcing, then we can say, okay, well, what went wrong here? But also, how might it be otherwise and what would that look like? And so it becomes this avenue for both social critique and also social change, even though it's a heavy lift. I love that because as you were explaining that that work that needs to be done to sort of dissect what is seemingly inevitable, it reminded me of, you know, one of my favorite writers, Ursula K. Le Guin, when she gave her, I reference this all the time, so listeners are probably tired of hearing me say it, but I don't care. It's a great quote, you know, that, you know, we once believed in the divine rights of kings, right? And we and that seemed, as a system, inevitable. And now we are living in perhaps other systems that seem inevitable, but can potentially be changed through the interrogation and the work 
that you described. And which invites me to ask, when I read a book like you and engage in it like yours and then engage in a conversation with someone like you, and I'm often curious as to, it would seem like it would make sense to engage thoughtful folks like yourself deeper into these conversations to have that interrogation as early as possible. And that seems to not happen perhaps as often as it should happen. And I'm curious if you see that as maybe something that would be helpful as we try to negotiate a reality with technology, design, society, power, and politics. A hundred percent, yes. So one of the things that I've been really working to do in the last few years, so I spent sort of the first 10 years post-PhD trying to just sort of establish an intellectual research program. And now the things, the projects that I'm working on, the things I'm really working towards are working with industry professionals who build things (laughs) and working with design professionals who make things and who are designing our tools that then design us and design our world. And I think that has there. And so that's been sort of a personal reprioritization for me to, to continue with the intellectual and academic stuff. I'm an academic, but also to gear my projects towards really practical kinds of ends with direct engagement with, for instance, startup entrepreneurs and some even larger corporate entities who are trying to sort of think about these things in design. But that's not, so that's like a me thing. But I think in general, I think social scientists of technology have been kind of screaming about this for a long time. Like we've been saying, we're bringing sociological insight to the things that you're creating and we're talking about them. And we could have predicted how these things would roll out. Like if you were going to use a hiring algorithm to pick the best candidate, we could have told you that it was going to be racist and sexist. We could have told you why. Like we could have told you that the data you were going to use was going to be based on a legacy of white male supremacy and that that was going to recreate itself no matter what sort of little tweaks you put in. And so there are you know, research institutes and individual scholars and thinking in particular like AI Now Institute, Data and Society, as well as a lot of just individual academics who have sort of been waving our hands around for a long time saying, we would like to be part of this conversation because you're going to make the tools and we can help mitigate some of the harms that they would otherwise enact. And so, yes, 100%, I think that social scientists of technology, especially those kind of bringing a critical lens as well as evidence-based science to their projects, could have a real a real benefit or have a real role in not just business and technological production, but the worlds that those technologies create. And I'm at this moment where I'm, I'm looking at two different forks in the road as to where I want to go, because I really want to start to talk about choices. But I think it will be helpful to spend some time on really some conditions and frameworks that you described early on in the book, but then continue to weave through the chapters, which is, and I love the way this was put together because I think there's some things that I inherently recognize as just part of the way in which we navigate through the world, but hadn't seen them in the way in which you laid them out. And once I start talking about it, it makes sense to listeners because now they're waiting with bated breath to hear where I'm going with this. So you talk about five, and I wrote them down here, like conditions and frameworks, like there's demand, encourage, discourage, refuse, and allow. Did I get that right? And request. And request. Okay. And you start to use that as a way to connect what systems and objects are really asking of us along the way and how those things can be Um, changed as we think through these processes. So I want to give you time to kind of just walk through those conditions and frameworks. And I think that will, you know, afford us into the next part of of the conversation. Yeah. One of the things that I did in the book was take this concept, affordance. It was a single concept, but it was, had become kind of saturated and overworked and turned it into an operational model. And that operational model has two parts, the mechanisms and the conditions. And and what we're talking about right now are the mechanisms of affordance. And that is the how, right? So how does the technology afford? And so rather than, as we talked about this, these binaries of inevitable or impossible, 
we can instead have really simple and accessible language to talk about the force with which the technology, the force that, that a technology applies to us and how it responds to what we want to do. And so the language I picked, the framework I picked is technologies can request, demand, encourage, discourage, refuse, and allow social actions, right? So I think a really relatable example is when you try to touch a computer screen to manipulate the stuff on the screen. If it's not touchscreen enables, you are refused, right? Like it refuses that action. So that's just a really sort of simple example. But then you can also sort of expand that out a little to sort of social functionality. For instance, Twitter allows anybody over a certain age to use their platform. If you are somebody who, say, incites violence and spreads misinformation, you may be removed and thus refused from using the platform. But also to sort of give a finer and more nuanced point to what that could also look like if you're a person If you're someone who is vulnerable to harassment, so you're a politically active queer woman of color, for example, and you and that platform, that platform on the one hand allows you voice, encourages you to express your voice and at the same time exposes you. And so may discourage, may discourage certain forms of communication or usage at all. So what this framework does is it lets us interrogate really practical questions about functionality. How does this technology function, and also really complex social processes of human technology relations within society. You know, that leads us into kind of where I wanted to go, which is, first, I'll do the sort of the cultural differences that exist in those spaces. I think the analogy that you used or the example that you use is a good one, right? That you can be empowered to use the technology But if you are in certain vulnerable or marginalized groups for whatever historical and cultural reasons, the platform could actually be weaponized against you, whatever the platform might be. It doesn't have to be Twitter, but we can maintain the Twitter example just for continuity. So I wonder how can we start to account for those sorts of you know, historical and cultural nuances when the other sort of frame of technology very broadly is usually that it is objective. And in its objectivity, it can't really cause harm, right? Like, you know, I'm simplifying the argument on the other side, but you hear that a lot, right? Like, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? You know, Twitter doesn't cause harassment, people harass or whatever it might be. So I'm curious about how we sort of pull that apart a little bit. Yeah, well, so technology, I think we need to begin with the assumption that technology is not neutral. (laughs) Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Technology is a product of human social relations and embedded within human social relations. It's of the flesh of society. And so guns don't kill people. However, guns do reflect and create a system of deadly violence. And so I think that reframing of technology, not as any sort of neutral entity, but of society and enacted with people who are from society and as constructive of society is kind of the important starting place to be so that we can talk about how Twitter's design features don't come from a vacuum, but come from existing political power and value systems and how they affect direct behavior while also generally perpetuating those value systems that they currently reflect. And, you know, I want to go to also another example that is kind of in the cultural space, because you use this in the book, and I thought it was very effective, the shopping cart example, which is also on the cover of the book. And you detailed when you moved to Australia and having to use the coin-operated shopping carts and what those different, going working through that process took you through like the thoughts of what is it encouraging me to do, discouraging me to do, sort of the cultural reasons why people use shopping carts in the first place and all of that. Like, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but it was, I thought, a very, very useful example to kind of go through these process. And it made me think about shopping carts in general. And I was curious about 
overlays that happen in systems that then trickle down in the sense that, you know, there was a time when refrigerators were smaller, for example, right? People didn't buy at like Sam's Club and Walmart, these 80 rolls of toilet paper. So in a way, do you think the shopping carts kind of predicted (laughs) that we would consume and stock up more or the fact that we started to stock up more made shopping carts more effective? And it doesn't really matter so much about the shopping carts, but I'm trying to get the yin and yang of of how we move through that affordance process. Yes, I think that's a great point. So our technological systems are interoperable is the way that I would describe it. And by that, I mean the ways that our grocery stores are set up affects how affects the ways that we'll design the shopping carts that we use to collect food, both of which affect and reflect the ways that we transport food between stores and homes, which affects the design of our homes, for instance, the size of our refrigerators and our cupboards. These things could all change as delivery infrastructures become more normative. For instance, if you're getting daily food deliveries, perhaps our refrigerators would again shrink. However, that would be tied to class relations where those who could afford daily deliveries could have the small fridge and those who had to shop in bulk in person would have to maintain the larger fridge. These things will then also be reflected in how homes are built. For instance, what does that inlay where the fridge goes look like by default? And whose household does that inlay size represent? And so I think what you're describing or I think what you're pointing to is the interoperability of multiple technological systems and their integration with and construction of societal norms. And that kind of leads me to the where I, the other fork that I wanted to go on, which are the, you know, the political choices of, of technology and how we've kind of started to talk about the culture. But I want to introduce the examples of bias that we've seen you know, both implicit and explicit. You know, I, I just jotted down a few. There's clearly face recognition technology that has become a serious problems when it comes to those of people of color, Black people in particular. Benign examples, or somewhat benign, I guess, of, of soap dispensers that don't work under color skin. You mentioned Google search engines sort of leading you down certain roads when given keywords and connecting those biases. And so many of these are tied to, you know, status quo type of conversations in the culture. And it seems like we're in a a watershed opportunity now where there's more voices sort of raising not just the alarm, but charting a new way forward, yours being one of them. So I'm curious, how do you see all that playing out, particularly at this moment (laughs) that that we're living in? Yes. So I think to say just a few words about the moment that we're living in, I think it's a terrifying and exciting time. It's full of tumult and opportunity. And what we're seeing are, you know, you're talking about a lot of sort of forks in the road in this interview. I think we're seeing a multi-pronged fork in the road in terms of where society goes. And what we see is a big backswing towards traditional values is too kind of a word. We're seeing a big backswing to people who are interested in preserving a hegemonic status quo that preferences whiteness and preferences masculinity and mostly ignores issues of social class while continuing to presume and enjoy sort of polite white middle-class society, right? Like that's sort of what they're defending. But then you also have a new recognition of how those existing arrangements have been so damaging to so many people. And you have In many ways, through social media channels and through alt media channels, what you have are voices like yours who are, and like, you know, many of the academics that I work with and who I know, and a lot of the activists out there who are pointing to systems that have been taken for granted, insisting on changing how those systems operate. And I think one of the places where we see that happening is with and through our technologies, where Technologies are rolling out 
they're again, often presented as objective, sometimes even as anti-biased, right? Like we're going to get rid of the bias with these technological systems. And then you get critical scholars and activists who come in and are able to point to the ways that those systems, in fact, reproduce the inequalities that they're trying to get outside of. So criminal sentencing algorithms were meant to overrule judges' personal biases along race class lines. In fact, they amplified those race class biases and issued harsher sentences to Black defendants, right? We talked about hiring algorithms earlier. Amazon tried really hard, like several times, to put in hiring algorithms that would pick the best candidate and, again, overrule, override personal biases in hiring decisions. What it kept doing was finding ways to identify race and class and gender within people's applications through machine learning and, again, offer more jobs to white men. So apologies for the rambling. So the moment, so the moment is full of tumult and also opportunity. And there are a lot of scholars who are running with the opportunity to point to the things that might otherwise kind of go by unnoticed. For instance, what shows up on your first page of Google search results and what kinds of race gender relations does that represent? And also offering new new alternatives. What could this look like? Um, one of the really, I think, a really interesting thing is that example of Google returning racist search results comes from Sophia Noble, who wrote the book Algorithms of Oppression, which has become quite a famous book in the last, in a renowned book in the last you know, couple of years since it came out. And since it was so renowned, and because Sophia Noble has been so vocal and because other activists have used that work to be very vocal, you actually see a change in Google search results. So when she wrote the book, at the beginning of the book, she searched for black girls and what came up were sort of pornographic imagery as opposed to when she searched for white girls and what came up was little girls playing in parks. By the time the book was complete and she'd been sort of presenting and talking about this work, the search for black girls no longer showed pornographic imagery, but was sort of more pleasant outcome, which shows in a you know sort of isolated example, but a really powerful one change can happen and pointing to the problem can be a really important and critical step in the solution. I mean, her book is fantastic and we haven't gotten to the drop, but you know, we can, we always sprinkle little things in here. So for those who are listening and haven't, you know, spent time with her work, I would highly recommend it. And I feel like there's a cadre, like a crew of other thinkers in the space that are really producing some really important work. And so if Google's doing its job, if you search for her, you'll probably find others, <laughs> you know, that are that are um, kind of swimming in the same water and, and interrogating the, the same things. And I, and I love that answer. And, you know, there was no rambling in that at all because it's important stuff. Right. And I think it's critical to go through that journey. Right. We started the conversation talking about hows, right. And hows, require nuance and they require us to like use our voice, <laughs> you know, in as many ways as, as possible. So I love long nuanced answers. That means that we're doing our job and it kind of leads me into the medium is the message, right? Like you refer to, you know, Marshall McLuhan's work in the book. And I think it's, it allows us to have the conversation around the relationship between power technologies and the medium and how some of those things intersect, particularly when it comes to affordance, you know? So you mentioned in the book, but without giving away too many spoilers, because I, I want to emphasize, we want people reading the book. <laughs> um, why did you feel it was important to bring his work and really distinguish it as part of this conversation? Yeah, well, so Marshall McLuhan wrote like a million years ago, and by that I mean in like the 1950s, right? So Marshall McLuhan is this really classic communication scholar who has come under, I think, fair critique and also has been really influential. And so I wanted to sort of take what I did in sort of chapter, I don't know, two or three, I think three of the book. I'm not sure. One of the chapters. It's toward the, the end of this, sort of the middle in there, yeah. like in that three, four area, I think. Yeah. Okay. So sort of before I got into in the book, the model of affordances, mechanisms, conditions framework, I wanted to kind of lay some groundwork for what other people have said about how technologies operate in society. 
And so what I did was kind of pick the biggest names and the biggest theories to talk about how they got us here and how we needed to build upon or in some cases sort of do away with them, but how we needed to appreciate how they got us to where we are in our intellectual lineage, but also where their shortfalls are. So Marshall McLuhan is a really famous communication theorist who had this really famous tagline, the medium is the message. And the idea is that the medium matters. How we engage with each other through a particular technology shapes who we are and what we do and how we think, how we feel, how we behave. The problem with Marshall McLuhan is that he kind of took the case too far. And so he, what he ended up arguing was that technology doesn't so much shape us as determine us. And so what I wanted to do was sort of give credit to McLuhan for saying, you were really important in telling us to pay attention to the way that the material technologies and the way that it's configured also works back to configure us. And now also we need to add nuance to that by saying it does shape us, but it doesn't determine us. We're creative and agentic human subjects, and we can do a lot with the technology, no matter how powerful. And that deterministic nature that's sort of cooked into the way he thinks about communication and the technologies in those systems, it also seems that the way you have framed affordance is, or at least the way I read and interpreted, as something that is very cross-disciplinary in the way in which we should be using these frameworks. And that would seem to very effectively counteract the deterministic way in which he lays out his argument. Was that intentional? Absolutely. So one of the things I did in laying that groundwork was I picked sort of the biggest, the biggest, most influential theories in human technology relations, but I picked them from different disciplines because I think as we... When we're dealing with something like technology and society, it's silly to restrain yourself to disciplinary bounds. Like right now, we're talking, you're an anthropologist, I'm a sociologist. Those are kin disciplines and they're related to each other, but they're quite different. But one of the, I think there's a real relevance and a need for direct engagement between social scientists, humanities scholars, but also computer scientists engineers, the people who are doing sort of the mathematics of it. Technologies are so multifaceted and so consequential. We need to bring all of the strengths and the tools that we can together to understand and intervene in how those technologies operate. And so part of that is looking backwards to who influence the way we think about technologies and the ways that we engage them from different disciplines and sort of putting those people in conversation with each other so that we can also reach out to one another across disciplinary boundaries, outside of disciplinary boundaries, and work towards critical and robust futures. Yeah. Anytime futures is plural, I love it because I try to use that as much as possible. It flies in the face of the deterministic nature, how we think about these things as as kind of singular endpoints. One of the things that really excited me when I was reading the book was you enter into this notion of hostile design. And as much as, as the book is talking about technology, you also talked a lot about our our physical spaces and the physical way in which we navigate the world. So it's sort of deceptive in the sense that, you know, it's not as purely technological, quote unquote, as I think one might think. And these are all good points. And the hostile design was not something I expected. So as it came up, as I was reading, I was like, oh man, this is awesome, right? Because, you know, I was an architecture major when I was in high school. So a long time ago, but my high school is a very like, is of engineering science school. So being an architecture major there was not like fun, right? It was like, you know, most high schools don't have majors, but Brooklyn Tech had a major and I chose architecture. And, you know, we didn't talk about any of these things. Even in a city that I would argue, particularly for the time that I was in high school, which was 86 through 90, it was building very hostile environments in which to combat the social environment that we were living in, right? And so I wanted to 
give you an opportunity to kind of talk about why you felt that specifically highlighting and talking to the issues of hostile design in the context of affordance was important. Yeah, well, I think one of the things, I'm really glad that you brought up the fact that a lot of the examples I use in the book are not high-tech examples, because what I wanted to do was approach technology more broadly as the tools that integrate with our daily life that reflect and shape us. And so architecture is a critical one. And I think it's critical for two reasons, two related reasons. One of them is that it's often ambient. It often sort of sits in the background and affects us in ways that we don't notice. And also because as, and relatedly, as it affects us in ways we don't notice, it reflects, it affects us in ways that are profound. And when you look in technology studies, actually, one of the classic works from technology studies that sort of showed most loudly that technologies are political was an article written by Lyndon Winner called Do Artifacts Have Politics? And it was about the bridges in New York City. And so listeners might be familiar with this. You might be familiar with this. But so this was written in the 1970s. And what Langdon Winner showed was the bridges in New York City were designed by a guy named Robert Moses. And he made them really low hanging, which seems like just an aesthetic decision. But it was not. Because they were low hanging, it prevented buses from going, from getting underneath. And because buses couldn't get underneath, it restricted access to these desirable beaches in on the coast of New York. And so in doing so, what it did was restrict those beaches to people who could afford cars or personal transport, which disproportionately are white, wealthy people that's sort of keeping out those who use who do use public transport, generally less wealthy people and people of color and the people who intersect those categories. And so in updating, I wanted to sort of bring that in to say, okay, so that was this article written in the 1970s about bridges that were built far before in the sort of first half of the 20th century. But what about today? These things are still at play. There are still benches. It's a really common thing to make benches with sort of spikes on them. And what that does is it keeps homeless people from laying down. There are bike racks under bridges oftentimes to prevent homeless encampments. There are bathroom configurations which have gained new political salience in recent years that exclude those without binary gender identification. And so I thought it's really important to talk about, I think talking about the mundane and the way that the mundane reflects and shapes who we are as individuals and as a society is always a point worth repeating, reminding, and highlighting because these are the technologies, the technologies broadly conceived that we encounter and that sort of, I think, make us in the most subtle but powerful ways. Yeah, absolutely. And citing someone like Robert Moses, like, you know, we're, we're sprinkling some real gems in here because, you know, Robert Caro is like one of my favorite human beings ever. Someone I've never met, but I've read all his work. And Power Broker is just, you know, which details deeply Robert Moses and what he meant to New York City is, I used to tell people all the time, like, if you want to understand New York City and why the subways suck and, you know, why the neighborhoods look by and large the way they are, you have to read that book. It's long, but it's actually really, it's really good. So it's shorter than it appears because I found it engrossing. And as much as I loved like Game of Thrones and, and George R. R. Martin, I always tell people like, I'm, I'm more want Caro's book to come out than anything else. Like on the nerd watch for the last LBJ book is, is huge. But I think those are in critical points. And those are things, like you said, it's ambient. And I never noticed them growing up, right? Like even beyond the spikes on park benches, like I read an article talking about how park benches, now they put extra like curves in them, which seem to like separate the benches, but it's just so they're just naturally too short for people to lay out <laughs> on them. And, you know, they seem like you said, ambient aesthetic choices, but they have real social and political impact. And oftentimes we kind of miss that being out there. And also I think it's an important to point out like hostile for whom, 
because those benches that have the the curves actually are very welcoming to someone who wants to sit and have an armrest, right? So it's very welcoming to the person who's on their 30 minute lunch break from the office and they can set their drink on the thing next to them, right? While it's really prohibitive and damaging to the person who needs to lay down because they don't have anywhere else. And so I think also I have a friend who is a technology theorist also who, Naomi Smith, who talks about, I don't think she's written about this yet, but we've talked a lot about the size of chairs. And so the, the sort of standard size of chairs assume a particular body and are very welcoming to a particular body. And in general, in general, that a body that's within a particular weight range. And if you're above that weight range, the chair becomes hostile, right? The space is unwelcoming to you. It, it refuses entry or at least causes real discomfort if you are to utilize it. Yeah. And some of those um, Scandinavian or kind of Nordic design, you know, fancy design chairs, they hurt those who have not the strongest yeah. core. You know, you're like, how All am right. I going to get out of this contraption? You're there forever. You just live there now. <laughs> you're trapped in a chair because you have weak uh-huh. core strength. You know, the holiday seasons were not, were not as kind to you as you might have wanted. As I've gone through multiple bags of truffles and, and wine <laughs> over this time. You know, I want to start to get us into the final segments of the show. But another part that really leaped out to me, and I just kept it very broad because I thought it was just, I want to leave space for you to kind of talk about it. So I just wrote down concept of dexterity. Let's spend time there, <laughs> you know, which is kind of toward the end. But I just loved how you put that together in the book. The notion of dexterity, again, was one of those just words and concepts that I didn't expect to kind of surface. And so let's spend time there. Dexterity. Yes, let's. Okay, so I think that actually is a really nice, that's a nice segue. So we were just talking about when we ask how technologies afford, we also have to ask for whom and under what circumstances. And what that does is acknowledge that technologies are never uniform or universal in their effects or in their rollouts, or in their in their engagement with human subjects, but always conditional. And dexterity is one of those key conditions. How skilled are you with the technological system? How physically able are you to engage with it in the ways expected? How much knowledge do you have about how it works? And so a scholar, uh, Gina Neff, I know I'm doing a lot of drops, but Gina Neff has has said a computer looks really different to a lay person than it does to a hacker. And essentially what Gina Neff is telling us is that the hacker has a lot more dexterity with that computer, with that browser, with that operating system than, for instance, than I do, right? Who I'm just sort of an average person. And I have more dexterity with that than my mother does who didn't really use the computer until she was, you know, into her fifties. And so what we're looking at are those, those variations in dexterity. And I'm talking again about semi-high tech examples here, but also we can think of like stairs, right? So stairs have a function of bringing a person from one level to another. However, if you don't have the muscle dexterity to one leg at a time, climb up those stairs, right, then they may allow or encourage usage for for one person and refuse it to another. And I think it's really critical that we talk about not just dexterity, but more broadly, the conditions under which a technology enables and constrains and who the assumed user is, and in turn, then who is presumptively excluded or quietly excluded most of the time. And we're getting into the final two segments of the show, but you end the book going through like what you call like some big questions that you want to leave the reader with and as they engage further with these ideas. And in this final question, before we get to off the dome and the drop, even though we've been dropping all through the episode, which is great, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of, why did you feel it was necessary, one, to kind of leave the reader with a sense of inquiry at the end of the book and why those particular points of inquiry as the big questions? Because you cover like quite a bit in there. So I'm leaving a little bit of space for that. Yeah, great question. Well, so I think the real reason that I ended the book with questions is because even though I wrote a whole conceptual theoretical book, I'm like over it with the theorizing. So like 
<laughs> I think our problems are too big. They're too acute. They're too pressing right now. I did that theoretical work of constructing a model of affordances. It's super practical, super accessible, super usable for specialists and non-specialists. And I wanted to not only signal, but set the groundwork for putting that framework into action to make change in the world. And so uh, that's the reason that I sort of ended with these sort of big queries, these big questions tied in with even, you know, sort of specific examples of the kinds of things that you could ask to help people, encourage people to now go out and do the work. And myself included, I'm over it with myself with the theorizing too. Like, let's get out there and do some stuff. And I wanted to sort of signal that. And the things that I signaled were drawn from what I was reading about in academic, in academic articles and books, and also the kinds of conversations that were happening in public venues, informally on places like Twitter, but also among think tanks and, and news programs and on podcasts, and the kinds of things that people were thinking about, like, what is the future of AI in society? How are our social media platforms affecting our social engagement and, and political communication, things like that, things that really seem to sort of matter. And I wanted to kind of feed that back to people and tie it in with this affordance framework so that we could kind of get to the business of doing. Getting to the business of doing. That is a perfect way to start to go out and jump into off the dome, you know, which are just some rapid fire questions designed to literally be off the dome. First thought, go for it. And you remarked at the beginning of the show that you've you know, somewhat recently relocated to Australia, right? So it's been about four years. So what is the most Australian thing you have encountered while you've been there? Daily kangaroos. I see kangaroos. Like I thought that that was going to be a thing that was like, if I go to a nature reserve or I like, it maybe will happen once everywhere, every day, kangaroos. It's They're everywhere. It's wonderful. Really? <laughs> really. <laughs> They're like like deer. They're just hanging out. Wow. I love kangaroos visually. You know, like I think my love affair with kangaroos probably started when I was a kid with Looney Tunes with Hoppy, who Sylvester would always confuse him as a really big mouse. And, and it's like, <laughs> dude, he's a kangaroo, man. Like, come on, like <laughs> get with the program. But anyway, it's hard for me to imagine seeing something so like human sized just kind of moving around. That's the best. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely super Australian. Um, so the second off the dome is if you were facing time on a deserted island, very castaway-esque, would you rather be on that island alone or with your worst enemy? Oh, alone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm emotionally exhausted just thinking about being on an island with like anyone, but especially an enemy. Okay. <laughs> If you can gain one superpower, what would that superpower be? I'm going to say flying. I'm going to regret that answer, but it's the top. I'm going with flying. Okay, go with the top. And, you know, now that we're living in this sort of pandemic reality, everything is digital. I feel like our lives are a little bit more on demand than they've ever been before. So, you know, I'm kind of hard with my like personal space with folks. So I don't really have one of these. I just tell them like, I don't want to talk to you. But <laughs> in your life, and it doesn't have to be pandemic related, but what is your go-to excuse? <laughs> oh, my dogs. But so my, so I have three dogs and one of them is like super rescuey. And so he does have a lot of needs, but I can call on those needs anytime, any place, any day whether or not they're actually pressing. <laughs> the dog is a good excuse. Perfect. And my final off the dome is, if you can go back in time to any part of your academic career, what would be the class you would pay more attention to than you did the first time around? This is going to seem weird, but I actually think my statistics classes, <laughs> because I got through them and I did the work and I learned it, but I think increasingly, it's. I think increasingly understanding the mathematics behind statistics and numbers and trends is really socially empowering. And I wish I had that skill more ready in my tool belt. Fair enough. That's a good one. 
stats is like that's one of those joints where you just try to get through it <laughs> but it comes it comes in more times than you would ever think <laughs> those are awesome so the final segment of the show is the drop and the drop is just a recommendation a, a intellectual tasty morsel as i've had it described that we leave with our listeners. And this episode has been filled with, with drops. So folks who listen to this, you're getting like a special treat, but you know, we have official ones beyond the ones that we've already kind of given. So do you want to go first? I can go first. It's up to you. You go ahead first. Okay. My drop and I'm going to read it is a book. You know, I'm always usually books or music or whatever, but it doesn't have to be those one of those two things, but mine happens to be. And I started this, and so by the time people listen to this episode, I would have finished it. But I'm already recommending it because it's really pulled me in. And it's a book called This Is How You Lose the Time War. And it's by Amal L. Motar and Max Gladstone. And I won't give it away, but it's just the way in which they've put this world in place. It's been a great read so far. I'm about halfway through it. And... I'm already recommending it. So yeah, that's my drop for this episode. Okay, that was a good one. All right, so so my drop for the episode is a book by Celeste Costanza-Chalk called Design Justice. And the reason that I recommend this book, one of the reasons, I mean, one, it's just great, but also they were writing the book at the same time I was writing my book. And I really, really want, wish that I could have cited their book in my book. And I didn't get to, and I just have to live with that regret forever now. And so I'll just promote their book as much as possible. What they do is take a lot of the ideas about design and how design reflects and shapes society and show us how people already are putting this into action to make a better world and also how we can put design into action to make a better world. Highly recommend it. Excellent book. I second that drop. Their book is great, and I've downloaded the PDFs. I have a physical copy. It's uh, amazing, amazing work. So double cosign on their work, Design Justice. So many good drops in this episode. I want to thank you so much. And I didn't use your full title, Dr. Jenny Davis, at the beginning of the show. I always want to make sure I, I use that because you earned it. No matter what the Wall Street Journal says, screw that guy. So Dr. Jenny Davis, thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure having Dr. Jenny L. Davis join me on the deep dive. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side. Thank you.